Okay, hello and welcome to today's uh, lecture podcast. How's everybody doing? This is Dr. Stuart Tully for History 256. Uh, today's going to be day one of me talking about the actual fighting in World War II. I'll probably get this done in about two days. Uh, I am cutting this up, though, because ordinarily I do this over several days in class anyway, even though it's all in one PowerPoint. However, I have separated the PowerPoint for you, so there should be no problem with everybody getting it and looking it, so I'll give you a second to go into Moodle and check out the PowerPoint. Okay, hi everybody, we are back. So as you see, this is World War II, the actual fighting, part one of two. If you go over one slide, you'll see today's quirky picture of the day. Yeah, I took that picture of uh, Hera yesterday. There she is, uh, admiring uh, my wife's new vegetable garden. Well, not that's not her garden, that's just some seeds she's planting. What's really fun, as you can see, if you look at Hera's left paw right there, you will see a bumblebee. Uh, just happened to happen. We have tons of bumblebees around the yard for some reason. So, anyway, there we go. That's that. All right, let's go over one slide. So, early objectives. Now, last class, uh, the United States had been attacked at Pearl Harbor. Both Japan and Germany had declared war on the U.S. Uh, Italy, too, but that's a very minor thing we're going to talk about a little bit later. Uh, the early objectives, though, for the U.S., remember, the U.S. was not exactly ready to go to war at that exact moment. Um, it's going to take a while for the U.S. to get ready to go to war. And the main emphasis for World War II, at least at first for the U.S., and actually for most of the war, is Germany. Germany is the main emphasis. Uh, Germany is the main threat to our allies. Uh, they're fighting a war with Russia. They're, you know, afraid of what's going on with uh, Germany and Britain. Japan was a secondary target. It was a secondary objective. Uh, it was viewed that uh, Japan was under no real threat of invading the United States and the mainland. Uh, there was a threat of maybe Japan invading Australia, but they're mainly taking over Pacific Islands. Uh, Japan could be held in a holding pattern. It could be held in a holding pattern. It would take a while for the U.S. to get up back up to strength to fight Japan, though. Still, it was a holding pattern, nothing that main onus, though. Uh, relief was also wanted for the Soviet Union. Uh, that is something you're going to be hearing about quite a bit as we talk about World War II, is the idea that Stalin is pretty much fighting the Germans by himself. Uh, the idea of a second front of providing some sort of relief to Russia, who, remember, has a ton of population, but not a lot of supplies. And the U.S. is in no real hurry to fight against Germany directly. They want Russia to hold out as long as possible. But to do that, Russia needs aid. And Russia can't fight a one-front war by itself for forever. Yes, they have a lot of population. They have a large landmass. They don't have an infinite amount of supplies. Now, the U.S.'s main plan to do this, the main, the main tactic to do all this, I mean, the strategy was to, you know, just hold out for everything. The main way the U.S. wants to do this, the main way the U.S. plans to do this, is by simply outproducing everybody. Uh, the U.S. is in a unique position because it is very unlikely for the U.S. to be directly attacked. I mean, aside from the, the great invasion of Chicago, which never happened, I'm lying. <laughs> That's why that, works, that joke works a lot better in class because I could get a response. But the U.S. was not invaded its mainland during the war. Yes, I know one of y'all is going to say something about those islands in Alaska, which wasn't technically a territory in this time period. Uh, there was one bomber who, I think, tried to make it to, like, uh, Oregon or Washington from Japan. Doesn't really count. The U.S. mainland was under no real threat of direct invasion. And 
the U.S. planned to outproduce everybody. Uh, the U.S. Uh, economy could be going, you know, kind of full force. Manufacturing could be going full force. The U.S.'s plan was just simply outproduce everybody. Make more guns, make more weapons, make more food, make more stuff. While all the fighting is fighting in other places, the U.S. can keep the home front pretty secure. Uh, the U.S. has, like I've mentioned before, it's a very large landmass, has a lot of different uh, natural resources. The U.S. did not need to import resources to make stuff. And that's the U.S.'s main goal. The main goal, supply Russia, but also simply out produce everybody, out-make everybody, just make more stuff than everybody else. So the U.S. has declared war, and they have ideas about how to win, but they have a major problem. The main problem is that the U.S. has nowhere near the amount of troops, materials, or money necessary to fight this. It's going to take some time. Remember, uh, probably the thing I've told you more than anything else in this class, wars cost money. And the U.S. is doing a little bit better from the Depression. In fact, spending for the war is going to get them out of the Depression. But it's going to take the U.S. months to transition to a wartime economy. Um, right now, I mean, during the quarantine, you're hearing stuff about companies you know, needing to make ventilators and masks and stuff like that. It's not something you can do just overnight. You just can't flip a switch and all of a sudden, you know, we, we used to make trucks and now we're making ventilators. You have to get the materials. You have to figure out how to do it. You have to get the workers. Not only that, um, the U.S. has to train soldiers. Uh, people don't fight instantaneously. Uh, it it's, takes training to turn somebody into a soldier. Even basic training is a couple months. Uh, sorry, a couple weeks. So I think basic training is uh, six to eight weeks, I believe. Uh, hey, any military people out there, uh, let me know exactly what it is. And that's just your basic training. I mean, if you need more specialized training, it's going to take at least six months for the U.S. economy and the... Um, troops to get ready. Same thing with manufacturing. Uh, the U.S. has to be able to, like, make things. And the problem is, while the U.S. is getting its footing, this would allow Japan and Germany, uh, who've already been at war for quite a while, a chance to really sink in. And this is really most keenly felt in the Pacific. Because during the six-month window, Japan is really taking a hold of a lot of islands. Um... By the end of December of 1941, so not even a month after the Pearl Harbor attack, uh, Japan had taken over Guam, the Wake Islands, and Hong Kong. Now, islands are keenly important in the Pacific, mainly because there's not a lot of landmass. There's not a lot of landmass between, uh, if you look at the Pacific Ocean, it, it's ginormous. And particularly between the U.S. and Japan, there's not a lot of just stuff, not a lot of land. Uh, that's why the Navy is so important, but also that's why aircraft carriers are even more immensely important. Because aircraft carriers provide a place for an airplane to land and refuel and do things like that, where otherwise you might need an island or a landing field. Aircraft carriers are, in essence, floating islands that uh, planes can come off from. At the beginning of the war, the, everybody assumed that battleships would be the most important, but the war actually showed carriers were the more important uh, force. But Japan is taking over all sorts of islands. Uh, Japan's plan is to become very entrenched pretty much across the entirety of the Pacific. So by, by the time America can come in to the war, it's, it's just going to be so entrenched that the U.S. would probably just negotiate for peace or just not fight that much. This would have been accomplished a lot easier had the Japanese taken out our carrier group, but the Japanese didn't take out the carrier group at Pearl Harbor. But still, it would take a while for 
the U.S. to get up. About, like I said, about six months. Now, what does happen is in the Philippines. Remember, Pearl Harbor was a, was a surprise because nobody expected they would attack Pearl Harbor. They expected the Japanese to attack the Philippines. And finally, the Japanese do attack the Philippines about a month or so afterwards. Uh, in the Philippines, like I said, the Japanese attack occurs. And the Filipinos and Americans, they surrendered after holding out for a few months. Uh, it's, it goes on for about two or three months where the U.S. and the Filipinos, remember the U.S. controls the Philippines in this time period, they are fighting a, a guerrilla war pretty much against the Japanese. However, the U.S., uh, the army at the Philippines, same thing with the Filipino military, they were not expecting a long-term fight with the Japanese. Uh, mobilization hadn't really occurred. There had not been really a, a pileup of supplies or weapons to fight against the Japanese. So the Filipinos and Americans who did fight were outgunned, outmanned, and mainly malnourished. They simply did not have the resources to fight for a long time against the Japanese. So when they surrender, it's, uh, it's, pretty, it's, pretty, it's pretty grisly. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Philippines, it's a group of a ton of different islands. I think there's like several hundred little islands in the Philippines, but there are some bigger ones. And on April 10th, 1942, about 12,000 uh, captured American troops and 66,000 Filipinos. So altogether, that's about 80,000, uh, give or take a few thousand. Uh, they are forced to march 65 miles in six days up the Bataan Peninsula. Now, that in of itself is not a very hard march. Um, 10 miles a day, well, a little more than 10 miles a day, if you're going 65 miles in six days, that is not a hard march. That's actually a very doable march uh, in normal circumstances. The problem is this was not normal circumstances. Uh, they're already underfed. You know, the, these, these soldiers are already underfed. These are prisoners of war. They're underfed, ravaged by disease, and they're given very little food and water by the Japanese. Um, if you go over one slide, you'll see a picture of part of, this, of part of this march. It later becomes known as the Bataan Death March. And basically, the Japanese, if you were falling behind, uh, you would be, like, kicked or punched to keep marching, even though you're starving. Uh, if, you, if you lag too far behind, you were stabbed or shot. Others are beaten or killed for seemingly no reason. Uh, the Japanese are known for being quite brutal to their prisoners of war during the World War II, during the Pacific Theater. That, in turn, makes the Americans and whoever the Japanese are fighting against be very cruel to the Japanese. It's a, it's a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. And during the six-day period, about 10,000 prisoners of war were killed. Now, this goes against every law of warfare, everything that, you know, you're supposed to treat prisoners of war decently. You know, they, they have surrendered to you. They're not actively fighting you. Also, you could possibly exchange them for your own prisoners of war uh, from your own side. Uh, that's something the Geneva Convention is very strict about, is how you deal with prisoners of war. You don't treat them bad. You give them medical care. You give them food. You don't beat them, and you certainly don't kill them. Now, when news of this comes to the American public, uh, this outrages the American public. It, it, it turns the Pacific War into pretty much a race war. Uh, there's a great book, War Without Mercy, that I read in grad school that really goes into the racial dynamics of the War of the Pacific. The idea that both sides are really demonizing each other on racial terms. We're going to get into that more with it later when we get into the actual fighting in the Pacific theater for the U.S., 
But just know that all the news is looking really bad for the U.S. in the Pacific, and Japan is looking pretty unstoppable. Like I said, the Bataan Death March is... It's a war atrocity, if you if you want to call it that. The fact that you're doing this to already underfed and malnourished, you know, I just repeated myself, and sick prisoners of war. It's not that it's not that great. Now, by we the time we get into the late spring, early summer of 1942, uh, Japan is on the verge of assaulting Australia. There is talk of of uh, the Japanese invading Australia which is a major ally for the British and the Americans in the area. Australia is a continent. It's a rather large, well, it's a rather large country. It's a fairly small continent. Um, large landmass. It's a pretty good staging ground for a lot of the Allied stuff. And the Japanese are looking like they're going to be invading Australia. However, some of the Japanese commanders, some of the, particularly the Japanese naval commanders, uh, are afraid of what they call the victory disease. Japan has been winning a lot. Uh, theoretically, Japan has, lot, has not lost a naval battle in 350 years. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe, not as, maybe not as long as 350 years, but it's been quite a while. And the thing is, the Japanese victories, they're not hard-fought victories. They're very easy victories. It's like whenever you have a, a sports team who just rolls over all their opponents. Eventually, the players are going to get to the point where they get kind of soft. They, they, they start slacking off. They think they don't have to give it out their go, and maybe they could be upset. Likewise, the Japanese Navy, because they've gotten a little soft, a lot of the sailors are taking a little bit more risk than are otherwise necessary. Now, the U.S., like I said, is not really doing that much. The U.S. is not really fighting against the Japanese all that much. Uh, the closest thing we got is a morale victory on April 18th, 1942, with the, uh, with the Doolittle Raids. Uh, basically, some U.S. bombers take off from aircraft carriers, in fact, the same aircraft carriers that weren't at Pearl Harbor, and they drop some bombs on Tokyo. Uh, this is only token damage. This is, this is mainly a morale victory. This is mainly a PR victory. It's the idea that the U.S. can drop some bombs on Tokyo. Uh, they don't really do that much damage. It's the first quote-unquote piece of good news for the U.S., but by and large, things are looking quite, um, I don't want to say grim, but they're not looking good for the U.S., mainly because Japan is taking all sorts of territory, and it's going to make it that much harder to fight Japan once the U.S. gets up to full strength. Remember, on the home front, all during 1942, the U.S. is trying to build up its navy, trying to train soldiers, transition the economy to a wartime economy. It's taking quite a while. So the America finally stops the, Jap the Japanese advance towards Australia at the Battle of the Coral Sea. Now, the Coral Sea is basically where U.S. aircraft carriers sank a fleet convoy of Japanese that were heading towards Australia. Now, I don't call this a U.S. victory, because the Americans took a lot more losses. Remember, the U.S. Navy is still a little stretched in this time period. The U.S. takes a lot more losses... But the Japanese invasion of Australia is swayed. It stopped. Australia is no longer the subject for Japanese invasion throughout the war. So it's sort of a victory. Uh, the U.S. do stop the Japanese from doing this. However, the Americans have a lot more losses. But it's the first time in a while that Japan has not straight up won a battle. You know, yes, they inflicted more casualties on the Americans, but their initial goals were not able to be fulfilled. 
Now, an even bigger victory for the U.S. is the Battle of Midway. Uh, Midway is the westernmost inhabited Hawaiian island. Uh, like the Philippines, Hawaii is a lot of different islands. Maybe some of y'all been in Hawaii, you lucky, you lucky ducks. And, you know, there's like the big island, there's Oahu, there's all these different islands there. Midway is the westernmost Hawaiian island. And it's a big American uh, naval base. Basically, Japanese Admiral Yamamoto is really trying to break off Hawaii from the rest of the U.S., the idea being, if the U.S. can get Hawaii, which is a major island, I believe it's one of the largest islands in the entirety of the Pacific, the island chain in the Pacific, if they could break off Hawaii, the U.S. would pretty much have no foothold in the Pacific. Uh, the Japanese had already taken over the Philippines. Hawaii was a major uh, refueling station. And so the the thinking was, if the, US, if the Japanese could take over Hawaii... It'd be even harder for the U.S. to get their fleets out from, you know, San Diego and Los Angeles. The problem is, for the Japanese, the U.S. had actually already broken Japanese naval codes and knew exactly where the fleet was going to be. This was supposed to be a surprise invasion, almost like a Pearl Harbor too. However, the Americans were prepared. Uh, the Japanese naval codes, like I said, had been broken, and the island of Midway had a lot more defenses and a lot more troops and a lot more ships than anything the Japanese knew about. Whenever the Japanese get there, they are stunned by the American presence. They, they thought this was going to be a sneak attack. They did not realize the Americans were going to have as much as they do. Now, as you can see, if you go over, uh, the Americans do a really good job of sinking a ton of Japanese planes and ships. Uh, mainly the planes. Uh, the fact that the Americans were able to take out so many airplanes is very, very beneficial for the Americans. Likewise, they sink uh, Japanese ships. Midway showed that, man, aircraft carriers are a little bit more important than battleships. Uh, the Japanese have some pretty impressive battleships. They tend to lag a little bit behind the Americans in terms of aircraft carriers, though. Which, remember, the Americans only have three major aircraft carrier groups at this moment. They're building more, but aircraft carriers take a long time to build. So it showed that aircraft carriers are going to be the future of warfare, not necessarily battleships, particularly with naval warfare. Also, this is the first time that Japan had been defeated at sea for like 350 years. I mean, I know that number is a little bit dubious sounding, but Japan had done a very good job of not losing naval battles. This also shows Japan that the war is not going to be quick. Now, the Battle of Midway also happens in June of 1942. And this gives America enough time to get production humming. That's the main thing one should realize. The early part of 1942, even though it's all these Japanese victories, it's the Americans are not fighting at full strength yet. America is really trying to get its wartime economy mobilized, trying to get soldiers trained, get everything straight. And that's what we're going to talk about for just a second. Actually, more than a second. For quite a bit is mobilization at home. Uh, in December of 1941, Congress passes the War Powers Act, which gives the president a ridiculous amount of power to regulate businesses, create government agencies, and censor information. Uh, this act is not really in place right now. You've been hearing uh, stuff about the Defense Act, which is something that Donald Trump may or may not have uh, implemented right now. The idea being that in a time of emergency, this gives the president leeway to create um, 
organizations, but mainly dictate what businesses can and can't make. Uh, mainly by assuring businesses that the American government will be the buyer. That's kind of the, the sticky wicket here. Is, uh, you know, it, companies are not going to produce a lot of stuff unless they know they're going to have a buyer. And basically, these acts ensure to companies that the American government, the federal government, is going to buy stuff. This also gives the president a tremendous amount of power. Uh, as I've said throughout this class, uh, since the Civil War, the American federal government has grown in authority, but also the American president has too. And this is one of those instances where the president of the United States, yes, it's a time of national crisis, but he's given a ridiculous amount of leeway. Now, something that also comes about in this time period is the draft. Uh, the draft expands. Uh, before it was 18 to 35, now it's all men uh, 18 to 45. Uh, over the course of the war, some 16 million men were in the military and a couple thousand women. Um, a lot of people volunteered, uh, pretty much all women volunteered, but there is still a draft. Uh, back when I was a kid, pretty much everybody's grandfather was in World War II. Like, everybody's grandfather was in World War II. I guess for y'all, it would be your great-grandparents were in World War II. Uh, for me, my, um, my maternal grandfather was a mechanic. He actually taught mechanics in Nebraska. He never served overseas that I know of. Actually, I know for a fact he never served overseas. Uh, mainly because during basic training... Uh, the final test was to stay overnight in a foxhole, and he had arthritis, and, like, because he was uncovered, he froze up, and, like, he couldn't move for a couple of days. So they never served on the front line. However, he was able to be a, um, he trained mechanics. Uh, he was a carpenter as his regular life, but uh, he learned mechanics stuff, and that's what he did for training. My paternal grandfather is a little bit more interesting he was what was called a warrant officer, which is an officer you don't really hear about uh, nowadays. It was a, it's a rank that pretty much only existed during, during this war. Um, he was a, the way I've heard it described to me was he was higher than a sergeant, but lower than a lieutenant. Um, he was almost like the business administrator for his unit. Basically, he didn't really serve too much on the front lines. Uh, he was mainly, you know, a couple, he was a little bit back from the front lines. Uh, he did things like censor information, you know, censor letters, uh, collect dog tags, you know, write letters when people die, keep keep the payroll and stuff for the uh, for the unit. Uh, he did serve overseas, though. He, he was in England for a while. I know he spent an extensive amount of time in France. And then finally he was in Austria for a while before the war is over. That's my paternal great-grandfather, uh, my paternal grandfather, my dad's dad. And this is fairly common. This is fairly common. Pretty much every buddy's granddad served in the war, but a lot of grandmas did too. Now, the average soldier during World War II, you, you might have seen like your Band of Brothers or your uh, Saving Private Ryans or Dunkirk or whatever modern uh, war movies you have. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the average soldier in World War II. The average soldier was 26 years old, 5'8", and weighed 144 pounds, which is actually about an inch taller and 8 pounds heavier than World War I. Uh, it still looks fairly small. Uh, I know whenever I go to the World War II Museum, it, it's amazing how short and thin some of these uniforms are. Now, granted, because I'm I'm rather... <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a tall fella and not the thinnest fella. Uh, still, I mean, I, I'd probably say the average soldier nowadays is 
quite a bit taller than five foot eight, and certainly a good bit heavier than 144 pounds. And you have all sorts of soldiers. I mean, yes, you have your your frontline grunts, you have specialists, but like I said, you also have people like my grandparents, my grandfathers, who uh, you know they both served. They both got. Um, I know my grandfather, my maternal great, my maternal grandfather got his pension. Actually, my grandma was getting his pension until she died a year or two ago. And uh, it was like $13 a month. He was getting $13 a month from the government. And then his widow, my grandmother, was getting his $13 a month from the government for his service in World War II. But, hey, a pension is a pension is a pension. Uh, my paternal grandfather never really drew his pension. He, he, yeah. he, 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 like many soldiers after the war, didn't really want too much to do with the military afterwards. I mean, he served, but he... He never did, like, you know, VFW stuff or war's uniform or anything like that. That, that was not his shtick. Now, something that is created in uh, 1942 is the War Production Board, which really d- d- directs the conversion of the American economy from just random manufacturing to wartime production. This is huge. Remember, the U.S.'s main plan is to simply outproduce everybody during the conflict. They want to outproduce everybody during the war, and it mainly does with manufacturing. They want to make as much manufacturing as they possibly can to get things straight, get things on board. Now, the War Production Board is going to direct who makes what. They, they, go, they do things like, you know, go to companies and tell them, hey, you're going to make this, you're going to make that. You know, Ford, you're now making tanks. Chevy, you're now making um, hospital beds, whatever. Mainly so that not everybody makes tanks, and also that companies know that they have people who are going to buy from them. Um, It's pretty interesting. For instance, in 1941, before Pearl Harbor, about 3 million automobiles were made in the United States. Uh, The big car companies make about 3 million automobiles. For the next four years, so until 1945, guess how many automobiles were made in the U.S.? Remember, it's 3 million in one year. Guess how many are made for the next four years? Okay, some of you are probably saying maybe a million, maybe a few, you know, maybe a couple hundred thousand. Uh, No, 139. That's it. There are only 139 cars made over the wartime period. So if anybody tells you, hey, I have a 1943 Buick, you call them a liar, because they don't have a 1943 Buick. Uh, FDR is calling for a ridiculous amount of production. In 1939... Uh, military production was 2% of the U.S. economy, and that's even after the U.S. started maybe slightly ramping up production for what might be a war or making stuff for Britain and Russia. Remember, they were already supplying them. In 1943, wartime production, military production, is 40% of the U.S. economy. I'm going to let that summer, simmer for a little bit. You go from 2% to 40%. That is an exponential increase. The entire economy pretty much becomes a wartime economy. Now, to offset the cost of this war, remember, because wars cost money, uh, the Revenue Act of 1942 is passed. This raises income taxes on pretty much everybody. Um, Income tax, I know right now you're like, ugh, well, most of y'all aren't really paying income taxes or your parents are paying them for you. But for those of us who've paid taxes on our own for a while, it's kind of a bummer. Uh, still, it's viewed as the most fair way to tax people. Uh, it, it's based upon your income. You pay a percentage of your overall income from no matter where you earn it to the government over the course of a year. 
Uh, before the act was passed, only 5% of Americans paid income taxes in general. Um, income tax was implemented in the U.S. as a progressive measure and only went for the richest of the rich. Uh, this act raises that number to 75%. So 75% of the U.S. population almost instantly is paying income taxes. By the end of the war, it's about 90% of the U.S. general public is paying taxes. Uh, nowadays, I... Oh, God, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I want to say it's around like 80% of the U.S. pays taxes right now. Uh, if you make below a certain level, you don't have to pay taxes. So this is increasing taxes on people. Now, that in of itself might be problematic because you think it's an oppression, but because of the increase in war prime production more people are getting jobs. And with people have jobs, they have the money to pay taxes. The thing is, though, taxes aren't enough. Taxes aren't enough. And so the government has two ways of making money. The government can have taxes, and the government can sell bonds. And that's what the government does extensively during the war. Uh, bonds are a way to give your money to the government, and then they pay it back later for a little bit more. Uh, war bonds, victory bonds are the most common. Uh, something my grandmother gave me pretty much to her dying day every Christmas was a savings bond. And the way that works is basically, you know, you, you buy it for face value, so it's like $5, and in 30 years it's going to be worth $10. And it's these are usually very stable investments. Uh, to this day, even though the financial crisis were, well, the looming financial crisis you might, you might hear things about financial advisors advising treasury notes, even though they, ba they barely give interest. Uh, generally, the federal government is seen as a very safe investment, probably the safest investment. Um, you're not going to make a lot of money on in interest. You're going to make a, a fraction of a percent, if that. However, you're pretty much guaranteed that your money is not going to go anywhere. So in World War II, the U.S. is extensively doing victory bonds, war bonds, uh, that's fairly common. Most people do buy war bonds with their wages. Uh, the size of the federal government also grows pretty well. Uh, the federal government quadruples in size. Uh, before the war, the war, uh, the the federal government has about a million workers. Now the federal government has about four million workers. Uh, jobs are good. <laughs> uh, unemployment goes way down. Uh, before the war, unemployment was at about fourteen percent, which is really bad. Uh, it goes down to 2%, which is almost nothing. Uh, I'm not going to get extensively into this, but actually, from an economic purpose, having 0% unemployment is not necessarily a good thing, because then workers may not be able to like get a better job. But 2% unemployment is virtually no unemployment. Pretty much anybody who wanted a job could get a job very well. Women are getting jobs in record numbers. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But women are getting jobs in record numbers. And this gets a lot of people a lot of salaries, uh, particularly women. Remember, I've mentioned before, probably the most uh, powerful thing for women's liberation, for women's rights, is her own money, her own checking account, her own money, her own separate money, her own separate income. This happens in World War II. We're going to be talking about it in a second. The problem is, with more money being flushed in, the U.S. spending in deficit and collecting all this money in taxes... There is a great fear of inflation. There's a great fear of inflation because more money is running around. Remember, we're in the, we're coming out of the depression. Likewise, when people have money, they want to spend it on stuff, and so a lot of economic controls are put into place. 
A primo example is the Office of Public Administration. It did things like set price ceilings. It wants to make sure that inflation doesn't get out of hand. Likewise, rationing happened shortly thereafter. Now, something I want to explain to you about rationing. Rationing is not done when people don't have money. Rationing is done when people have money and they want to spend it, but they want to make sure there's enough stuff for everybody. Uh, that is the thing here, all right? Uh, it wasn't like there was a lack of supplies or a lack of money during World War II. U.S. workers had tons of money. And there was theoretically a ton of supplies, but they wanted to make sure there was enough for everybody. Also, they wanted to make sure the war was in, under, you know, the war effort was supplied. You know, soldiers are getting their stuff. Uh, they really appealed to patriotism during the, uh, the propaganda and other advertisements, encouraging, encouraging rationing. But the main reason was actually to prevent inflation. Uh, the, the government really tries to make rationing patriotic. Uh, there is some backlash from workers and businesses. Uh, the idea that a business can't increase the price if demand is increasing is seen as you know somewhat backwards to ec economics. Likewise, workers could not strike in this period. Any worker was set, was told, "Your job is too important to national defense. You, if you strike, you know the federal government will be called in. Uh, the government might even take over the business." Uh, most people do indeed fall in line. Uh, and these controls actually do work. Inflation does occur, but it's about half the rate as it was in World War One, So it's actually better. Uh, let's go through some ads. Let's go through some propaganda. Uh, as you can see right here, there's a lady talking about uh, ration points. She's canning her own food. Of course I can. I'm as patriotic as I can be, and ration points won't worry me. Uh, the idea being that she's you know growing her own vegetables. She's not buying as much. She's not spending as much money. She's buying war bonds, things like that. Uh, another one, do with less so they'll have enough. Rationing gives you your fair share. Yeah, basically they want to make sure that the rich aren't hoarding everything. Uh, you know, coffee is something that's rationed. They have like nylon drives and things like that, scrap metal drives, to build things for the, uh, for the, for the troops. Uh, we'll have lots to eat this winter. Won't we mother another slide? Grow your own, can your own. Basically advising people, you know, save, save your money. Well, no, no, not necessarily save your money. Spend your money on war bonds. Like, give the money to the United States. Don't spend your money on um, stuff. Don't spend your money on things. Uh, in spite of all this, there is a conservative backlash, probably because of this. Uh, Republicans do get huge gains in Congress in 1942. 1942 is a really, really uh, big year for the Republicans in midterm elections. Uh, outside of the Solid South, Democrats lose seats everywhere. Now, they're very much in favor of wartime production. However, they think the New Deal programs are just non-essential. They say the country is on, um, you know, it's in war now. We don't need things like the WPA. You know, we don't need to be building buildings or, you know, supplying art or doing slave narratives. It's, it's the war's more important. Likewise, the Civilian Conservation Corps is dismantled. You know, we don't need a Civilian Conservation Corps. We have an um, Army Corps. That, you know, we have the Marine Corps. They need to fight. And so uh, that happens. Likewise, organized labor is going through a lot of issues. Uh, during the Great Depression, during the New Deal, they were given a seat at the table. That kind of gets taken away. Remember, uh, you know, strikes were made outlawed. There, there's, a, there's a call for a mining strike, uh, coal miners, Say that they're not getting paid enough, they're not getting compensated enough. 
Congress actually passes a law that says if these coal miners do go on strike, they are going to get their um, mine seized by the government. That actually happens in a couple cases. Also, picketing is outlawed. Picketing is outlawed, so nobody can even just, like, even if you're not working, you can't say, hey, this is unfair. Pretty much everybody's expected to do their part for the war effort. So it's all pretty conservative, actually. It's all fairly conservative in this war effort. So we're going to finish talking today on another long thing. So we're, we're about the social effects of the war. Like I said, this is going to be a fairly lengthy thing. I'm going to be talking for quite a while. Uh, some of the stuff is stuff I'm really, really keen on. I'm really, really knowledgeable out. I've written about. So just uh, hang on and enjoy the ride, because... This is going to be a long one, even though it's theoretically just one unit. So the war changes a lot. Uh, and particularly, it changes two regions. It changes the West and the South quite a bit. Let's talk about the West for a second. The Far West, you know, your Los Angeles, your, your Seattle's, your Portland's. Uh, they get the fastest rate of urban growth. More people are moving to... Uh, the far west in this time period. There's actually a new round of the Great Migration with African Americans moving to the far west. For instance, Seattle and Portland, their African American populations increase tenfold. Uh, why are so many people moving to the west? There are jobs. There are jobs in these military factories, uh, the naval shipyards, in places like Los, Los Angeles. Uh, Los Angeles gets its first major increase in the African American population. Uh, this will become important later on. We talk about like the Watts riots, the Rodney King riots, South Central, gangster rap, all these fun things. Uh, also, Seattle and Portland um, also actually have African-American populations for the first time. So the West is changed by World War II uh, pretty extensively. Los Angeles becomes a really major city because of the war as well. Actually becomes a major city in California because of the war. Uh, the South also changes quite a bit. Uh, it gets most of the new army bases. Most of the new army bases are built in the South for three major reasons. Number one, uh, the climate. The South is fairly warm. You can train year-round outside. Um, in the North, it's not as capable of doing that. Also, there is talk that the, the South's climate is similar to what you're going to have in places like Japan, so... That's fine. Uh, the second reason why more army bases are built in the South has to do with availability of land. There's a lot of land available um, thanks to, you know, uh, Agricultural Adjustment Act mechanization. Uh, a lot of sharecroppers have been displaced from the land, so there's a lot of crop space that's available. There's just more space in general for uh, stuff to be built in the South. And finally, it has to do with appropriations and seniority. There are more Democratic... Um, long-term congresspeople from the South, and FDR is trying to reward his Southern compadres because they otherwise don't care for some of his more liberal um, ideologies. Uh, sharecropping is pretty much destroyed in this time period because of mechanization. Uh because of the war effort, they start doing things like, hey, we need to put in more machines. There's also an economic boon. Um, you know, a, a harvester or a combiner can it, can, it can harvest way more than any individual can. This pretty much cares, kills sharecropping within the South. 
Um, army bases also completely change the economics of the South. Pretty much the army base becomes the new center of a lot of southern towns. Uh, for instance, my parents are both from Shreveport. If you go right across the river from Shreveport is Bossier City, which otherwise is a nothing town except for Barksdale Air Force Base. Uh, Barksdale is a very important Air Force Base, and it pretty much it totally changed the economy of Bossier. Uh, even people who don't work directly for the military or for the Air Force, their livelihoods is due in large part to Barksdale. So the economy of the South changes, and this is going to become put into play later on when we talk about the New South and the Sun Belt. Now, the rural population of the South decreases 20% during the war, and it never comes back. Uh, the rural South really, really gets smaller during the war because of jobs, because of availability, because of the, the shipyards in places like New Orleans and Houston and Mobile. People are leaving the rural areas, and they don't come back. And that, that's another thing you got to be thinking about later on when we talk about the civil rights movement stuff, is that the South, it's totally in transition. Um, the old South is dying. This old agrarian South is dying. There's more onus on just the military and mechanization. Now, there's also a lot of changing roles for women. Uh, with more men going to war, jobs were available for women, which otherwise were not allowed for women. Uh, there are all sorts of jobs available for women, which otherwise were deemed as not appropriate for women. But the old prejudices are just, they can't, they can't do it. I mean, women need to be in manufacturing. Women need to do things, because there's just a simple need. Uh, also, women are joining the military. Uh, if you go over one, you'll see a, a nice little picture of a uh, little little advertisement, propaganda, whatever you want to call it, for a victory job. Where basically women can serve in the armed forces. Not just as nurses, but also as things like wax and waves. Uh, the women's army, the women's auxiliary corps is for the army. The waves have their own. It's for the navy. Basically, they are serving as, you know, officer, like lower officers, uh, administrative detail. None are really in combat, but still, they get fairly high ranks. Now, there's also women in manufacturing in a major way. If you look at this picture on the far right of that, that's the Rosie of the Riveter type person. Uh, this idea that women are involved in manufacturing, women are doing jobs. Uh, even married women who are traditionally don't work. Now, yes, there is some belly aching and complaining about, you know, what's going to happen to traditional gender roles, who's going to take care of the children. However, most women, if you go over one slide, you're going to see there's some women working in manufacturing. Uh, they're keen about earning their own money, and, and most actually do feel freed about the process. And this is something that's actually going to come into play later on with women's liberation, when we talk about uh, second-wave feminism, which really springs up after the war. Really has to do with what happens in this time period. Now, if you can tell by that picture, those are some African-American women. And yeah, African-Americans really have a change after the war. You would not have had the civil rights movement, as we know it, had it not been for World War II and the African-American experience. Now, despite the distaste for Nazism, uh, Americans hear about the Nazis being, you know, they're the enemies, all that white supremacist stuff, and they, they are rightfully demonized for doing so. Racism is still alive and very well in the United States, even during World War II. 
Uh, for instance, uh, the Red Cross initially says we are not taking blood from African Americans. Uh, the Red Cross is going on all sorts of blood drives. They want blood for American soldiers. However, they're like, hold on, buddy. We aren't taking black blood. That's not something we're going to use, not something we're going to take. Likewise, companies that get these really big, fat government contracts went out of their way to announce we are not going to hire black workers. If there are workers to be had, we want to make sure we hire white workers. Now, that's kind of upsetting because these are very good, well-paying jobs. Uh, the federal government is a... Uh, if you get a contract from the federal government, you're pretty sure they're going to pay. And so these companies are loving these jobs, they're loving these big, fat government contracts. However, they will announce that they are not going to hire black workers. Now, this is upsetting to a lot of different people, particularly upsetting to A. Philip Randolph. Go over one slide, you'll see a picture. A. Philip Randolph is a very, very important individual who I could talk about for quite a long time, but I don't have the time. Actually, I do, but I don't want this podcast to go on for three hours, so I'll just make it quick. Uh, a. Philip Randolph is the head of a labor union. In fact, he's the head of the first entirely black labor union. He's the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Let's break it down. Uh, brotherhood, just like a union. A sleeping car porter are the people that work on trains. They work on trains. They're kind of like a, a butler or a maid for your sleeping car. Basically, they, they haul your bags. They, uh, they bring your food. They take your ticket. They answer your questions. And it's a job where pretty much all of them are African Americans. Pretty much 99.9 with a repeating decibel. Uh, they are African-American, and they're African-American men. And so A. Philip Randolph has actually made a labor union out of this. Now, it's not just sleeping car porters. He pretty much comes the de facto leader of all labor unions for African-Americans. And he has been working with Roosevelt for quite a while, and he, he's, he's upset with Roosevelt. He feels that Roosevelt has not been holding up his end of the deal when it comes to black voters. Remember, Roosevelt really extensively campaigned towards black voters, get them to go away from the Republican Party. However, throughout the New Deal, Roosevelt seems to be upsetting African Americans. Uh, the New Deal programs are not exactly allowed for African Americans. And so Randolph feels that Roosevelt is not holding up his end of the deal. Now, what does end up happening is A. Philip Randolph has an idea. He calls for a march on Washington. He says, I'm gonna, I got contacts in addition to my union. I'm, I'm pretty much cool with all the African-American labor out there. I'm going to get 100,000 members and 100,000 black men to march on Washington. March on the Washington Monument, march on the National Mall, go to the reflecting pool, and demand an end to racial discrimination in defense industries. Now, this might sound familiar to you. A march on Washington. And I bet you're like, wait a minute. Is this, is this Dr. King? I, I thought that was done in the 60s for civil rights junk. Well, here's the thing. Even the threat of the march, even the threat of the march is enough to get FDR to do something. He does not want a repeat of the bonus army. He does not want to look bad against African Americans. And so he contacts Randolph and says, what is it going to take for you not to do this march? And Randolph says, in the discrimination in defense contracts. And so FDR does that. FDR issues an executive order stating that a company that gets a defense contract from the federal government cannot discriminate against 
workers based upon race. This is huge. These are big, fat, huge contracts that are good money. And now they have to hire African-American workers. They can't discriminate. If an African-American worker is qualified, they should hire them. This works like gangbusters. This actually gets African-American men and women hired into defense positions, which are very well-paying jobs, and they're getting paid the same as white workers. They can't pay them less either. That's another part of the executive order. Now, this emboldens a lot of African-American leaders. And they want to make moves using the war to gain civil rights. It becomes known as the Double V Campaign. Now, the Double V Campaign, I could literally talk about for four hours and not bore you for a second. But I'm not going to do that because we just don't have the time. So what you do need to know about the Double V Campaign, uh, the two Vs are the two victories. They want victory at home and victory abroad. Victory against fascism, against Nazism, and then victory against racism. This is a large-scale mobilization for African Americans to get involved in the war effort. They want to show America that we are good Americans too. We will fight. We will do our part. We will raise money with war bonds. As you can see, uh, you can go over one more. That's uh, that's uh, it's not Cab Calloway's band, but it's it's another band of you know popular African American band. They're they're showing the, their support for the V for Victory. They're trying to make patriotism linked to the African American experience. Trying to show just good old-fashioned American patriotism, show that the rest of the world, show the rest of America that African Americans are in this too. Likewise, there are numerous calls for African Americans to, ex to enlist in the war and demand combat roles. Now, African Americans had been in war in the military for quite a while, generally not in combat roles. Remember, we talked about the 369th, the Harlem Hellfighters in World War I, and they were not allowed to fight with the American military because the American military is still kind of racist. However, this is an issue in World War II because the armed forces is very segregated, most famously the Marines. The Marines are super segregated. Uh, the Marines will not let any African Americans in, period, not even in non-combat roles. There's discussion about whether African Americans are capable of, you know, mentally capable of fighting in a war. Likewise, are we, should we arm people who are otherwise discriminated against? You still have groups like the Tuskegee Airmen, who uh, are, I'm not going to talk about them too, too much. Y'all know about the Tuskegee Airmen, though. Uh, they, they do very well in the war. Uh, they serve in Italy. They, they, they show that things are pretty strong for them. Likewise, you have people enlisting, uh, like Joe Lewis. Uh, Joe Lewis is the heavyweight champion of the world. He becomes a private. A as you look, he says, you know, there's a lot of things wrong with America, but Hitler ain't going to fix them. So the idea that, yeah, America's got issues. America has a bad issue with racism, but Hitler ain't going to solve them. Likewise, I like that little piece of propaganda. Uh, we're going to do our part, and we're going to win because we're on God's side. If you go back, you're going to see a picture of Dory Miller. Uh, Dory Miller is hailed as a hero. He, he's hailed as the example of what African-Americans should do during the war. He was a cook. It was very common for African-Americans to serve as cooks, particularly in the Navy. He was a cook during Pearl Harbor. During the attack, he took upon himself to take over a naval gun, uh, one of the guns on the, on the ship, and start shooting down Japanese planes. Uh, he's hailed as a hero as this. 
he's held as an example of what people should do during the war. There's also a lot of drives for, for war bonds within the African-American community. You know, even though you may not have as much money as white workers, uh, spend the money on war bonds. Just show that it's well. Now, there are issues of, uh, sorry, of discrimination. There's quite a few issues of discrimination because of the war in the United States. A primo example has to do with POWs, with POWs. Uh, prisoners of war. Uh, it was not that unusual for German prisoners of war to be sent to the United States for their internment, uh, mainly because it's hard for German people to swim over the Atlantic Ocean back to Germany. And so there's a lot of these camps in the South. Uh, back where I went to college in Mississippi, there's a, there was a, the ruins, the remains of a fairly big officer camp uh, right outside of Clinton, Mississippi. Uh, in Baton Rouge, there was one in Port Allen. There was a pretty, uh, it was not as high-ranking as the one in Mississippi, but there, was, there were camps around. And these were prisoners of war camp. Now, it's not unusual to rent out these prisoners of war, these German soldiers, in chain gangs. Uh, basically, they would charge the farmers and other, other workers next to nothing. Uh, basically, they would be responsible for paying them lunch. And African-American soldiers were often on guard detail. So I want you to imagine, it's lunch. Uh, most of these farmers contracted that out to a local restaurant or a local diner. So it's been a hot day. You have literal, honest-to-God Nazis in a chain gang walking into a restaurant, a little diner, let's say like a... I can't even think of a diner. Um, I don't know. Jack's 30s-style diner. Whatever. Y'all know. Just a diner. Like a Waffle House or something. Literal, honest-to-God Nazis, POWs, are able to go inside. If the place has an air conditioner, they can stay in the air conditioner, and they can eat their lunch sitting at a table. Their guards are not allowed to. Black guards have to go around outside to the back. So even though you have honest-to-God American soldiers in uniform who happen to be black, they have to go outside around back to the kitchen to get their food, eat outside, whereas honest-to-God, swear honest-to-God Nazis are able to sit inside and enjoy a lunch sitting down. You also have things like the Lee Street Riot. Uh, the Lee Street Riot is pretty interesting. It happens in Alexandria, Louisiana. Now, Lee Street is kind of like a budget bourbon street. It's, it's, it's a street with a lot of bars. There are a lot of army bases around Alexandria. There's like few black army bases and a couple white army bases. Um, it's a weekend. It's a Friday night. And soldiers are on leave. Soldiers get a chance to go out to the street. Now, Lee Street itself is desegregated, but the bars are not. So you have bars that are either black bars or white bars, but on the street you have people milling around. If you go over one, you will see a picture of one of these type of streets. And pretty much you have black and white soldiers kind of milling around. Maybe they're having too much to drink. Now this gets some resentment of the townsfolk. Um, resentment between soldiers and townies is not that unusual, just in general. And so it's one night, it's a hot night, and so basically one black soldier gets a little drunk, and he gets a little belligerent. And the cops are called. The cops are called. They're like, hey, dude, you're drunk. And what happens is interesting because white soldiers come to his aid. White soldiers come to his aid, start telling the cops, hey, why are you hassling this dude? He's a soldier. He's fighting for you. And what you have here is weirdly solidarity 
within the South between black and white soldiers. Now, the Lee Street becomes a, Lee Street becomes a riot. It, it most certainly does become a, a riot. It, uh, it, it becomes kind of violent. Um, either 10 or zero people died. Numbers are kind of hard to come by. What we do know is Lee Street is pretty much destroyed afterwards. But it's interesting because you have black and white soldiers fighting together against the townsfolk and the police. So you're showing that there's some signs of solidarity between races against, and those who save. So although World War II and the success of the Double V campaign would later on be parlayed into the Civil Rights Movement, uh, organizations like CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, um, A. Philip Randolph is very much involved in the Civil Rights Movement too, it really gets their start. It's really emboldened by what happens in World War II and the Double V campaign. Now, let's move on to Mexican workers. Uh, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, they have a very interesting role during World War II. Uh, crop harvesting is very important. It's very, it's something traditionally done by migrant workers. Generally, migrant workers are the ones that harvest crops in the United States. Actually, sort of this day, you know, you have undocumented migrant workers mainly because they're cheap. Now, traditionally, Border Patrol would go, you know, harvest these, uh, you know, undocumented workers and ship them back to Mexico. But weirdly enough, during World War II, uh, border patrol agents are doing the opposite. They're literally going into Mexico and bringing undocumented immigrants across the border. Uh, Mexico does not like this. Mexico thinks, wait, this is technically kidnapping. You're taking people from Mexico to the United States without permission. That's kind of dubious. However, Mexico does agree with the U.S. They do come up with an agreement about what to do with these workers. Basically, Mexico's like, look, okay, we get the war's a big deal. You need these workers for, you know, defense purposes. Uh, we will let you do that on three conditions. Number one, don't use them as strike breakers. That's a common fear. You know, don't use these to undercut the, the work of others. Number two, pay them a fair wage. Pay them, pay them the same wage as everybody else. And number three, they cannot get drafted. The American government agrees. So what you have here is a Mexican population, Mexican-American population, who's getting paid fairly well, and they have no chance of being drafted. And so they don't really necessarily feel the same amount of patriotism or necessity to save their money, buy war bonds, things like that. Now this is going to become an incident at what's known as the Zoot Suit Riots, which starts out in Southern California, but weirdly enough, goes all throughout the West Coast. Now, if you go over one more picture, this is a zoot suit. That is actually Cab Calloway wearing a zoot suit. As you can tell, it is ginormous. It's got about two or three times the amount of material he actually needs. If you go over one, you're going to see some Latino zoot suitors. If you go over one more, you'll see a black zoot suitor. If you go over one more, you'll see Malcolm X, back when he was a zoot suitor. He was known as Detroit Red. So this is something done primarily with Latino Americans or just, you know, Mexican individuals, not even, America, not even you know, people from the U.S., but Latinos and African Americans. The zoot suit becomes popular. Now remember, this is a time of rationing. The zoot suit is a way to show that I've got a ton of money and I don't care how I spend it. It's a way to just flaunt your cash. Remember, there are price controls, there is rationing. The zoot suit is saying, you know what? I don't care. I'm spending a ton of money. 
It's like buying, uh, I don't know, a Gucci water dish. It's not necessary. You're just buying excess to show excess. Now, this comes with resentment. This comes with resentment from white America, who view this as unpatriotic. They view this as wasteful, and they view this as resentful. You know, they're doing, they're sacrificing, they're doing what they can, and then they just see these people who are just flaunting their, their newfound gains. They're just spending money on stupid things they thought. Now, this comes to a head one hot night in Los Angeles, where basically a couple soldiers on leave walk by. They see two Latino Americans, two young men in zoot suits, but they're on a date with two white girls. And this is apparently too much. They start beating up the Latino Americans. They start beating up the Mexican Americans for wearing the zoot suit. If you go over one more, you'll see what ultimately happens. The cops are called. Uh, they arrest the zoot suiters. They arrest the young men in the zoot suits. This expands throughout Los Angeles where basically sailors would beat up people with zoot suits with sticks or baseball bats. This actually spreads throughout the West Coast. This goes to like Seattle and like Minnesota. Or uh, where basically they, you know, Minneapolis, where they start attacking people in zoot suits, mainly for being unpatriotic. So you have some xenophobia in this, which is not too unusual, sadly. Uh, let's go on Native Americans. Now, previously, Native Americans had stayed out of most U.S. conflicts. The U.S. got involved in wars like World War I, Spanish-American War. Not too many Native Americans um, get involved in it. World War II is different. Uh, Native Americans actually have some of the highest numbers of volunteers per capita. About a third of all eligible Native Americans served in the military, which is actually a lot higher than any other group. So why do they fight? A uh, couple reasons. Number one, the reservation system had very limited job opportunities, uh, especially in the Great Depression. Uh, a lot of these people just simply needed a job. Uh, number two, the Nazis and Japanese were viewed as a threat to all of the continent, not just the United States. There was this idea that if the Nazis or the Germans took over the United States, which, as I said, was fairly unlikely, it would be bad for the U.S. and the people as a whole, you know, Mexicans, Canadians included. Uh, the most common does seem to be a sense of patriotism, though. There's a weird sense of patriotism that comes in Native American communities which might otherwise not exist. Now, Native Americans, unlike black soldiers, actually fight in integrated units, and they generally have very little issue. Uh, there's really no wide-scale race riots like you have with African-American or Latino groups. Um, most Native Americans serve with little incident. There's very little cases of discrimination against Native Americans. I'm not saying there's none. It's just not as extensive as there is against African-Americans or Latino Americans. Now, probably the most famous group of these, if you go over one side, these are the Navajo Code Talkers. Uh, this is actually pretty awesome and pretty neat because... Navajo is a language that had never been written down, period. Like, the Navajo language had literally never been written down. So th these Navajo code talkers are speaking in a language that had never been written down in code. They're not just speaking straight Navajo. They're actually speaking a coded version of Navajo. And this is the one code that the Japanese are never able to crack. The Germans try to. They're never able to crack it. They're never able to figure out. It's something they just never expected. Uh, the Navajo Code Talkers, like I said, it's a really, it's really cool, pretty ing ingenuitive. It's really impressive. It shows how they're able to, um, ex to exist in this. Now, the last thing we're going to talk about is the most tragic. It's the plight of Japanese Americans. Uh, 
there's really not that much anger towards German Americans or people of German descent during World War II. You don't have the Liberty Hound stuff that you have in World War One, even though most people in America are of German descent. That's the largest. Sorry, not most people. That's majority. A plurality of people from the United States are of German descent. Uh, there's not a lot of anger and resentment towards Germany as a whole or Japanese, uh, sorry, or German Americans. Hitler is indeed viewed as a threat. In fact, Germany is viewed as the main threat, but there's a large number of people of German descent. This does not apply to people of Japanese descent. The whole race is viewed as suspect, even those who are born in America. These are people who only speak English. Uh, they have limited or no memories of Japan. You know, they're born in America. They have no nostalgia for Japan. I mean, maybe they might speak a little bit of J Japanese because their parents do. Uh, the term most common is Nisei, which is uh, means second generation in Japanese. Um, if you go over one picture, you will see a little bit of propaganda. This idea that everybody in Japanese descent in California and the West Coast is just a ticking time bomb waiting for the signal from home. Now, if that picture looks familiar, it's Dr. Seuss. That's right. Dr. Seuss did all sorts of anti-Japanese propaganda during the war. Uh, the governor of Idaho, which, by the way, doesn't exactly border anything, puts into, he even says, look, all Japs should be sent back to Japan, and then we should sink the island. You're not having this vitriol against German-Americans or Italian-Americans. Uh, now, because of this hatred, the American government allows some of the worst violations of civil rights ever against Japanese. Uh, if you go over one slide, you're going to see something on the West Coast. Uh, Japs keep moving. This is a white man's neighborhood. Also, the idea that people's houses are getting vandalized. This is a, just a Japanese couple in America. Their kids, who are small, clearly born in America. They are subject to all sorts of offenses, all sorts of discrimination. And the American government does nothing. Now, on, on February 19th, 1942, FDR issues Executive Order 9066. 9066. If you go over one slide, you will see the Executive Order. This removes Japan people of Japanese descent from their homes on the West Coast and sends them into camps in the interior. Remember, the highest population of Japanese people live in the West Coast, Actually, that's a lie. Most people of Japanese descent live in Hawaii, which we'll talk about in just a second. This tells everybody of Japanese descent, U.S. citizen or not, you know, first generation, second generation, doesn't matter. They have to leave their house, leave their home. They don't get to retain their property. If you have a house, if you have a business, you have to sell it. They generally sell it at a loss. Now, this had been going on for a while. Uh, before this time, you have things like the U.S. cracking down against uh, Japanese owners of fishing ships in Los Angeles and other places on the coast. Still, this executive order makes everybody go into internment camps. They're told, only bring enough stuff, enough clothing for you. Leave your stuff. Leave your, um, you know, leave your valuables. This is not good. Like, if you have a house, you're probably going to sell it. You know, because you don't want to leave it out. It's sold at a loss. Now, the camps themselves are all over the interior of the United States. Uh, there's some in Arkansas, some in places like Nevada, mainly in the middle of nowhere. Uh, they are detained. And 
it's not exactly gel, but it sure as hell ain't summer camp. If you go over, you're going to see like people in behind barbed wire. Uh, camp life in of itself is actually pretty dull. As you can see, they're all eating in one communal group. Uh, they're really under intense scrutiny. They're not allowed to do much of anything. Uh, there are lots of various displays of patriotism. They're like, oh, we're going to have all these little parades and drills and stuff like that. You know, people have school. They have things like baseball games. You tell everybody showed up. Uh, you can go over one more. You have all these families living in these quarters. Uh, it's mainly these really long barracks. Generally, families don't get an individual room. They even have things like little dances for the uh, for the people for the young people working there. Uh, from what I heard, it's mainly very boring. It's boring, but it's a tense kind of boring. Now, vast majority of the detainees are citizens. The vast majority. Not only that, most of the people who do this are under the age of 19. Most of these people are children. Most of these people are people who just are kids. Now, ironically, despite the fears, there are no Japanese spies active on the West Coast. Uh, after the war, the Japanese admit, yeah, we had nobody. We had nobody on the West Coast. The one place where they do have a lot of Japanese spies is Hawaii. But there's no detainment in Hawaii because the population was too large. About one quarter of the population of Hawaii is Japanese, and that's too much to detain. So ironically, even though the U.S. claims they do this because they're afraid of Japanese agents, they don't do it in the one place where there are indeed Japanese agents. Now, pretty much the one way to get off the camps, if you're one of these people on the camps, is to volunteer for military service. And a lot of them do volunteer for military service for the double reason of getting off the camp, but also serving. Show your patriotism. Um, I remember I've talked about the 369th, which is the second most decorated military unit in U.S. history. Here's the most decorated. This is the 442nd, all Nisei. These are all second-generation Japanese um, immigrants. They're all they're all U.S. citizen. Uh, it starts out with Hawaiians of Japanese descent, but it eventually expands to Japanese of Americans of all of sorry Americans all over of Japanese descent. And this is a way that a lot of people got off the internment camps. Now the only caveat was that they were not allowed to serve in the Pacific. Uh, there was a fear that they might defect over to the Japanese. Now, ironically, this does not apply to the German and Italian American soldiers who are allowed to serve in Europe all they want. Uh, these people kick ass. The the uh, you can go over one picture. I, I love this picture. You can see the God. It's just a heartbreaking picture. The guy, you know, hold, the the dad holding on to his son who's who's come back. You can see just he's so happy to see his son alive. You know, his son has served. Uh, this military unit serves like with great great recognition. Like I said, most decorated unit in military history, and it's done at a time where things are very unfair to them. Uh, I do also have to mention the story of my mentor at LSU, Dr. Charles Shindo. He was, he is, he's still alive. He's doing great, actually. He uh, <laughs> was, no, he is. He is of Japanese descent. He's third generation Japanese. His parents are both Nisei. And ironically, his parents met in the internment camps. Uh, his dad's family was from Los Angeles. His mom's family, I believe, was from um, Seattle. And they were fairly young when this happened, but they actually met in the internment camp. They got to know each other in the internment camp, and they later, you know, they fell in love and got married and had a bunch of kids, including including Dr. Shindo. Now, ironically, uh, Shindo's grandfather, so Dr. Shindo's dad, his dad, 
was one of these uh, fishing boat captains in Los Angeles. And whenever they start uh, keeping the fishing ships, if you look at the Los Angeles Times, for whenever they announce the attainment of the fishing ships, no longer allowing Japanese people to be on fishing ships, uh, Takashi Shindo's granddad is right there on the front page as he's on the, he's on the cover picture. So that's uh, that, that's the story of that. So you know, it's kind of an interesting story in that uh, you know it comes out of that. Uh, I know George Takai, uh, Mr. Sulu. He was also in these internment camps, and he actually wrote a play about it, a musical about life in the internment camps. Actually, pretty interesting. Uh, ultimately, the U.S. does indeed apologize for the internment camps in 1983. In 1989, they actually paid reparations. They gave every living detainee uh, $20,000, which is really pennies upon what was lost. Remember, there's a lot of loss of property, a loss of business, and a loss of esteem. And remember, this was done for fairly racist reasons. There was no practical military purpose for doing this. It was mainly done to make the U.S. feel better about itself. And with that, we're going to end part one of World War II. Uh, next class, we're going to be talking about more of the actual fighting. We're going to get more into the military stuff. Maybe I'll talk about Normandy. Well, I'll clearly talk about Normandy. So for that, uh, this is Dr. Tully. Um, expect a test in about a week or so, because after World War II is over, we are done with this unit, and we will have ourselves a test. So with that, this is Dr. Tully, finishing part one of World War II. Have a good one.